Hey everyone, welcome to Thought Bubble Podcast. My name's Raghu Kasa. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Erica Ebel Engel. To give you a little bit of background on Dr. Engel, she received her PhD in biochemistry in 2012 from Boston University School of Medicine. She holds a BS from MIT. In 2002, Dr. Engel founded Science from Scientists, a nonprofit organization that focuses on improving science, technology, engineering, and math attitudes for kids. Dr. Engel was also Miss Massachusetts 2004 in the Miss America Scholarship Program. She's the CEO and co-founder of Excella, a company that evaluates gut health and provides suggestions for diet and exercise routines to improve and maintain gut health. So please enjoy Dr. Erica Ebel Engel. All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Engel. Um, I hope you're having a nice day. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit of backstory um, and how you got interested in science and um, where, where, just some backstory. Absolutely. And first of all, thanks so much for having me. And um, yeah, so the, the science story, I'm going to try to keep it somewhat short, uh, but I've always loved science ever since uh, I was a, a small child. Um, was inspired at a very young age by, I don't know if you even, I don't know how old you are, but uh, the book Jurassic Park. So I've seen um, the movie. Okay. Well, the book is better than the movie, as is the case in many cases. But uh, when Michael Crichton, uh, when the book came out, it was the coolest thing. And it was all about cloning and genetics and I just thought, wow, that's amazing. And that got me inspired to start reading other sort of science books like The Hot Zone by Richard Preston, um, The Body at War, and then a whole bunch of these, um, you know, really just you know, books about viruses and bacteria and, and health and immunology. And so it started there. There's sort of a second part where I think I was 11 years old and half of my class went on a trip to uh, D.C. And my parents actually said, look, you know, we can only afford, you have to choose. You can go on this trip with your friends to D.C. Um, with the school, or we can go to Cancun for our spring break vacation. So we can only afford one. You have to choose which. Mm -hmm. And of course I said, well, I'd rather go to Cancun. <laughs> yeah. So for those of us who didn't go on the Washington trip, we stayed back and there was there was some really cool programs. So our English teacher, interestingly enough, um, stayed back with us. And she did, I mean, she was teaching us everything from science to English to history, right? Because we were little. Mm -hmm. And she had us doing, you know, growing bacteria in petri dishes and just doing basic science. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. um, that next spring when we went on our trip, our family trip, we we had this really neat opportunity. So we visited a crocodile farm. Mm -hmm. Crocodiles, when they are mortally wounded, they will actually flip over mm -hmm. on their backs and sort of slip into a coma and die. And for some strange reason, um, you know, I was thought, gee, this is kind of interesting. 
that crocodiles, you know, do this, is it possible that, you know, cells in your immune system, um, cells do the same thing, that they commit suicide when they are infected with uh, pathogens? And I have no idea why, but that was the question. And so when I got back, they said, well, it's time, kids, for you guys to do a science fair project. And what do you want to do? And so I said, well, I want to see if cells commit suicide when they're infected by viruses. And I think my teacher was like, okay, <laughs> um, interesting project for an 11-year-old, but okay. And, uh, you know, obviously it wasn't something I could do at school. I had to find a lab. So I started calling, I mean, I'm going to date myself, but I pulled out the yellow pages and I started calling local labs, asking them for, you know, is, would you be willing to take on an intern? And so they would say, well, how old are you? So I was like 11. And of course, most of the, time, the answer was, um, no. Yeah. Some of the labs actually called back and wanted to make sure they wanted my parents to make sure that my parents knew that their mm. child was um, interested in viruses and who knows what she was really doing in the basement. But yeah. um, eventually I actually found a lab, uh, mm. the local public health labs, that was willing to let me come and learn. And the director was kind and gracious and just was a wonderful mentor. Um, and I was able to you know, he taught me all the proper protocols and I was able to run my little experiment to see if cells commit suicide when they're infected by viruses. And I was using like the least dangerous, least lethal virus that they carried in the lab, which was the herpes simplex that causes cold sores mm -hmm. on the lips. And um, I loved it. And that was sort of the beginning of my science um, journey and then ended up in the next year working on a different project, looking at the effect of certain Chinese medicinal herbs on the herpes virus. And mm -hmm. that project went all the way on through middle school and high school. So, you know, my love of science, I think, really started there. And I was lucky. I had, um, he was a, a delightful and very supportive mentor mm -hmm. um, for me. Yeah. And I think starting from a young age, it's, it's, very critical getting that interest going. Um, I know for me, like in high school, um, we had a few teachers who had like after school uh, classes specifically, like, like for example, um, the chemistry teacher, there was a specific department where he like once a week, he would have like a pyrotechnics elective, something you would never see in like this regular science classes or with some of my friends for the physics department, they did, um, they had a first robotics competition. Yep. So my friends did that. So yep. I think it's important to get exposure early as well as finding the right mentors to help you in the process. Absolutely. It's, it's so key. Um, you know, science builds on itself. So, mm -hmm. and it's really, I mean, it's not impossible, but if you're not, excited about it or you don't get inspired until you know late high school it's tough because it, you have to catch up you know there's fundamental math and other things that you you kind of you know again if you miss the boat early or if you had a bad experience you don't sign up for those classes then it's really tough to catch up later so yeah um being inspired to take the classes to even try is really really important mm -hmm. at a young age Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I was doing some research and then 
like when she when you went on to co uh, college um uh did you focus uh, specifically in a science field or were you interested in other like physics or engineering or yeah. like what was your background in college yeah no you know i would say obviously i was more sort of biology chemistry focused all along mm -hmm. uh, so you know ended up majoring in chemistry uh, i liked chemistry because you know, chemistry it spans many mm -hmm. and it it almost is a weird intersection between physics and biology i, I like to say it's a little weird in that way but it, it is in that yeah. you, know, you have biochemistry which is very much the biological application of pathways and metabolites and you know all of this and then you've got the intersection with physics and quantum mechanics um, which is a lot more you know math based and then you've got inorganic which is just like it's its own weird weird thing and strange materials and yeah. um, you know so science was the primary focus but you know I also loved and I still do in music so I minored in music at MIT mm -hmm. uh, it's just a very important part of my life and, and a hobby it keeps me sane yeah. uh, love that and I, I got to take a lot of other cool classes I took archaeology classes I took you know Shakespeare at, at the opera classes mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, that's in many ways the purpose of college, I think, is to allow you to experience different types of things and to, um, you know, to, to take classes that maybe you never would have thought of before um, and to learn, you know, expand your brain, expand your horizons beyond your normal comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I view it as I think it's really important to be at least somewhat well-rounded and you know you take the classes take english take history history is so cool and fascinating and um in addition to the science that i obviously that i love yeah yeah and um what got you interested in the um like the beauty pageant um because you participated and won the miss Ma uh, massachusetts um a uh, contest and what was your experience like uh was that just something you were like i want to do this or did you um accidentally do it or how, how how did that go yeah so it's a very interesting story um in a sense it's, it was accidental uh so imagine i'm gonna go this is, we're gonna go back 20 years right mm -hmm. um right around the time of 9 11 and you know, at the time I was a student at MIT and I didn't watch TV really. I just, you know, studying, walk to class, do my thing, walk home, read my books. Um, my parents, I remember, called and said, you know, you should really be paying attention to the news. So I said, okay, fine. So I, I went out and I bought a TV tuner for my computer mm -hmm. and was watching TV one night um, with a group of just friends in my room and we were, you know, funneling through the channels and sure enough, the Miss America pageant was on mm -hmm. and they all, you know, they all sort of turned to me and like, you should do this. And I'm like, I said, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But mostly just, I was, that was never, I know I wasn't into that as a kid. Um, that wasn't my thing. And they said, no, no, really. Like you should do it. You, know, you love talent. You love music. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why not? 
And so they just really kept like bothering me. Um, finally, they signed me up. Mm-hmm. So they they signed me up to to participate. Uh, and so, you know, you get this email that says, oh, congratulations, you've been registered as a contestant and um, show up on such and such a date for this local pageant. And the way it works is you, you have to compete at the local level first mm-hmm. and win at the local level. And then you go on to the state. If you win the state, of course, you go on to the nationals. And, you know, I, I finally thought, OK, you know what? Nobody's going to leave me alone until I try this. And I was a little curious, too. So. Uh, you know, they give you a list of what you're supposed to bring. And at the time, you know, I, I owned one black suit, one black dress, one black, one piece Speedo swimsuit. Um, so I'm like, okay. So I took all my stuff and I went and fully expecting that I would show up and, you know, who are these other girls anyway? Mm. Who are they? <laughs> um, and of course, you know, this is Massachusetts. So yeah. You've got, you know, people from all the Ivies, all mm-hmm. the schools competing, and each one looked flawless, uh, presented really well, was well-educated, <clears throat> and suddenly I'm, you know, I'm thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, and so <clears throat> I went through, you know, when you're brand new, it's, you just have no idea what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you go with the flow and you you know do this okay so I went and do this and remember I walked into my interview and nobody had told me I was also contestant number one which makes things even more entertaining because I had to go first and when you don't know what you're doing it's always kind of funny when you have to go first um, I walked into my interview and I was just standing there you're you're supposed to introduce yourself you have at least then I think the rules might have changed but thirty or forty seconds to just introduce yourself and mm-hmm. I didn't say anything because nobody had told me and they didn't say anything so we we're just standing there finally they said are you planning on saying something yeah and I, I have no idea that I was supposed to this is my first time so uh, but anyway I, I did not win uh, that mm-hmm. time. Um, but at the end of the night one of the directors of the Miss Massachusetts Fund um, actually came to me and said you need to do this again like mm-hmm. your first time, you have no idea what you're doing. Now you know. Mm-hmm. Try it again, because I believe you could be Miss America. Okay. And I, you know, somebody says that to you, um, and I, you know, because at the time, I remember my parents who were, you know, still in California. They called. Well, how did it go? And I was like, oh, Yeah. Well, what a disaster. I had no idea what I was doing, and blah blah blah. And my dad said, Well, is there anything you can learn from this? I mean, mm-hmm. something we can learn, and it occurred to me that there was a lot I could learn. Um, yeah. You know, I had very little in the way of public speaking skills. I didn't know how to dress and how to behave, and um, and the program teaches you a lot of very important sort of you know social skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a MIT only child, you know, I was very used to doing things alone by myself, and this really forced a different perspective. Um, So, you know, after that, I decided, you know, I would try it again. Mm -hmm. Um, I joined Toastmasters, which is a public speaking forum to get better at that. Um, I decided to essentially work with a trainer to try to get in better shape. Um, Just, you know, just working on, 
the social side sort of smoothing out the edges a little bit. Yeah. And it was really, in many ways, I think it was really awesome. So, you know, we, we talk about the importance of being able to go and do things that are outside of your normal comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I encourage people, obviously my story is around the pageant, but whether that means, you know, taking up a new sport or taking up a new whatever hobby, mm-hmm. you start out, you're not very good because that's just what happens. Yeah. You practice, you get better, and eventually it adds a new dimension to who you are and your personality and your background, and it really helps to build confidence mm-hmm. uh, in that, you know, at that point, you know, you could say, well, um, you know, if I really wanted to, I know how to dress up, I know how to get on a stage, I know how to present myself, I know how yeah. to, you know, without humiliating myself, you know, and and I think that's for me, especially now and what, what I do, it's extremely important. Mm-hmm. And um, when you, after you won Miss Massachusetts, did you go on to uh, compete in Miss America? I did. And how, how is the um, competition at the state level compared to the national level? You know, so the state level, of course, is smaller uh, mm-hmm. because it's not you know, it's not on television or whatever else, but um, there's this, there's kind of this belief that, you know, pageant girls all hate each other and it's very competitive. And um, I I never found that to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, even at the state level, everybody was extremely supportive. Uh, there was never, you know, I'm sure, you know, there's people that say things and people are catty at times and all this stuff. But what's the difference? In real, in normal life, people do that to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I never found that anybody was mean or rude. I, I always thought people were quite supportive. Um, you know, at, at the Nationals, it was very interesting um, because you got to see just how different the country, our country is. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's an interesting conversation even to have now, mm-hmm. uh, this moment in our history, yeah. uh, that you have people who, you know, we make judgment about what is, who is good and who is bad and what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, some people were just brought up a certain way, you yeah. know, and that was, it's who they are. And they didn't necessarily know that was mm-hmm. right, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it was a very different, you just got to see how different it was, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up in California, so West Coast, mm-hmm. came out to school on the East Coast. And so my, my everything was very much based on that bicoastal perspective. Yeah. You know, it was very normal for some of the girls from some of the other states, they were engaged to be married, they were 16 17 years old they were doing this pageant this was like their last kind of thing and they were going to go off and that was going to be their life and you had contestants who were going to med school you had you know contestants going to law school you had um you had all kinds of just different people Mm -hmm. you don't realize you know again because you're just so used to what you see every day as being normal Mm -hmm that it is a very diverse and a very big country with all kinds of different stuff, you know? And, and so again, at the time now, if I were to go and do it again, 
you know, I would be much less surprised, yeah. uh, much more objective. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, I was still extremely opinionated. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> I vocalized a lot of those opinions at the time. Yeah. Um, so was it, you know, uh, would I do it again? Yes. Because again, from even from the perspective of self-improvement and mm -hmm. pushing on myself to do these things that I normally would have never done. After that, you know, now every day it's like, well, I've never done that. Uh, yeah. Do I? But I have to. So okay, um, let's just try it. Mm -hmm. And rather than fearing, like, oh, I don't want to do that because I've never yeah. done it. Um, then you'd never become an entrepreneur. Then yeah. You'd never live life in a bubble. Exactly. So yeah. I think it's 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 interesting. It is a very um, I don't want to say controversial, but it is in many ways a bit of a controversial part of my life that, you know, sometimes people are like, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Um, well, you know, there's interview, there's onstage question, there's talent, there's fitness. Um, you know, so the fitness side is always the subject of, of great confusion, though. We go to the beach and we wear a swimsuit. So, I mean, to some extent, you get to pick what you're doing. Um, you don't have to wear something insane. Uh, but these are the parts and you have to stand on that stage and be judged by hundreds of people. And that's hard. Yeah. So, you know, I give great credit to the girls who do this because it's not easy. It's not easy to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to be judged mm -hmm. um, because it's so simple to sit in the audience and be like, why is she wearing that? Why is she doing that? Man, 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 yeah. Man. Yeah, you get up on that stage. Yeah. <laughs> you go do it. It's not easy. So, you know, give them some credit for trying mm. and for making an effort to improve themselves, you know, in a forum that works. Not everybody has to do it. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a million ways to, to improve yourself. Yeah. Well, that's – it was a nice interest uh, hearing about that. Um uh, I wanted to ask, um, shifting gears a little bit, um, you got interested with your company um, looking at, um, for example, the GI system, the nervous system, and I wanted to ask um, specifically what the brain-gut connection is, and um, more specifically, do you think there's like, in the gut microbiome, there's an interaction between the microbes that are in the gut, the um, enteric nervous system and the um, central nervous system? So, yes. So there are a bunch of questions in there. Um, so let's start. Well, let's let me, well, I'll start. And then if I forget something, just go ahead. So, yes, they mm -hmm. are obviously all interrelated. Um, you know, my, my interest in this comes both from personal experience. So I, you know, I, I suffer from a variety of gut issues um always have which is frustrating um so you know i have ibs so there's there's a sort of a latent personal interest mm -hmm. when it comes to talking about the interrelatedness of the gut to other areas of health i mean think about it logically the gut is the center of everything 
right? Yeah. How do we fuel the body? We fuel the body with food. Mm-hmm. That food, of course, has to go through the gut. And mm-hmm. all the nutrients are converted into the various, we call them metabolites, but let's say markers, compounds, uh, nutrients that fuel all the other systems health. I mean, down to even your hair. Yeah. I mean, things that you eat get converted into the cells that make up your hair, your nails, your eyeballs, your your liver, your, I mean, it, right? Where does it come from? It doesn't magically just appear. It comes from something. So the gut is just so critical because it's, it's that center point. Mm-hmm. Everything, um, you know, everything goes through it and then yeah. it's through it and then is shuttled out to other, you know, other areas of health. Um, the enteric, so the enteric nervous system is, it's the name that is given to the connection between the brain and the gut. Mm-hmm. There is literally a nerve that runs between your brain and your gut mm-hmm. that allows the two to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. So when we say, you know, I feel anxiety, like let's say I'm stressed in my head and I, you know, why is it that I feel butterflies in my stomach? Why is it that I maybe, you know, when I get nervous, I suddenly have to go to the bathroom more? Why? Well, because of the enteric nervous system, because of that nerve, the vagus nerve that connects the brain to the gut, you know, your brain is stressed and it's, you know, it's connected to the gut. So that those, that increased movement is causing your gut to do more peristalsis, which is causing you to go to the bathroom more. So, mm-hmm. yes, they're very intimately um, connected. And mm-hmm. then it works the other way, too. So if you're, you know, constipated chronically in the gut, well, yeah, that's going to stress you out. Yeah. How important is that? Yeah. Well, so, you know, again, there's just a tremendous amount of research that talks about, you know, many of these gut-type conditions Mm-hmm. And the importance of anxiety and depression and stress and emotional disturbance and how, you know, the two are very much intimately connected. It was interesting. I was reading an article recently on, it's called the, the Brain-Gut-Lung Access and its relevance now to COVID and how, you know, these, these things are all connected. So I had not, I had, I had heard about it, but it was just really fascinating that, you know, the gut, again, is connected to just literally everything. Yeah. And um, for as far as the microbes go in the gut, do you think that, how do you think they got there? Do you think it's, uh, do you think it's mainly um, like our environment where we live and what we eat that uh, contributed to, contributed to how the gut microbes got inside the gut or do you think there's a genetic component or something else right so it's both mm-hmm. um and i think i think that research has shown that um obviously we have a symbiotic relationship with these critters mm-hmm. um, they need us we need them um, they break down the food that we eat and, you know, there's all kinds of different ones that have different functions. So some that break down, and this is very generic, but the same that break down vegetables, some that break down bread, some that break down fat, whatever. And their entire purpose 
is to take the food that we eat, break it down, and then thereby allowing us to be able to absorb those nutrients. So symbiotic relationship, how did they get there? Well, I think it's both environmental and genetic. So we know genetically that um, there's going to be a certain complement of bacteria that, that you have. And some of it you pick up even when you're born. Uh, so as you, again, vivid pictures, but as you enter into the world and pass through all the goo, um, there is a whole microbiome down there if you're the mother. Uh, and so you pass through it and the baby picks it up as he or she is, you know, emerges from the womb. And so, you know, they're doing a lot of research so showing now that, you know, if you're born by C-section or, you know, you didn't, you never had access to that, you weren't exposed to the vaginal microbiome, you're actually at a kind of at a disadvantage because you just didn't, you weren't, you didn't get touched by it. And that's how they're, you know, that's how they're covered yeah. <laughs> with it. So there's genetics, there's birthing, um, but then there's also the environment for sure. And that mm. plays a definite role. So, you know, if you're living in a very aseptic environment, you're not playing in the dirt. You're not exposing yourself to these different microbes. Um, you're at a disadvantage again. Right? Yeah. So yeah. it's been fascinating. Many of our, one of the things that we've noticed in our research is many of our partners or clients who were not born in this country uh, mm -hmm. actually have more diverse microbiomes because, you know, here in the States, we were, you know, we pride ourselves on, on our cleanliness, but in many ways, it's actually contraintuitive to wanting to have a healthy microbiome. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't, you don't have the opportunity to be exposed to all the different critters that you would be if you were born in a, you know, maybe mm -hmm. a, I don't want to say a, a not as aseptic environment, but, you know, um, born elsewhere. So, mm -hmm. and they're showing now, again, allergies, eczema, you know, asthma. These are all things that happen when your your body is so used to being clean and then something happens to perturb it a little and the immune system goes bonkers um, and starts to essentially over, just overdo it. Um, autoimmune disease. These are all things that are much more prevalent in first world world countries than in third world countries. They just have better microbiomes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and how do you control that? Well, you know, don't just eat processed foods. Don't eat the same foods. Um, you know, here you can go to the supermarket and buy the same thing every day. Whereas in other countries, you know, you go to a farmer's market and well, today, Artichokes aren't available, so you've yeah. got to eat something else. Well, that's good because it actually helps your microbiome to become more diverse mm -hmm. uh, because you're helping different species to to live and thrive. Mm -hmm. And I've also um, uh, heard or read in some articles where so for some patients, their, um, their gut microbiome is not as diverse and so they're taking they're having to take like um fecal transplants from healthy patients and transplant it into unhealthy patients to try to regrow some of their um microbiome yep that is that is happening one of the challenges with that is that it doesn't always 
take permanently. Mm -hmm. So you might see, and that's to some extent a genetic question, like because your your body has to decide that it wants to hold those creatures. Um, I know that's been one of the challenges with fecal transplants that it doesn't always, it's not always permanent. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what's your um, opinion on uh, probiotics? Um, do you know, um, for example, um, have they identified specific bacteria that if you take these probiotics, they can lead to improvement in strength or if you take these bacteria, they can improve your um, gut microbiome and it could lead to um, better mental health or have they identified specific bacteria that lead to specific health outcomes or, yeah. Yeah, no, um, it's a great question. We get asked that a lot. Um, And I can, if you're curious, just personally, I'm happy to send you um, some citations. There's, there have definitely been, some studies that correlate specific species of bacteria to specific outcomes, um, improvements. So, you know, I think it's it's still on the early side of that, but there is definitely research happening that will say, you know, there are studies done on, you know, Lactobacillus species X uh, that have shown, you know, if baby takes this you know, in their milk or whatever that they, you know, are at a less likelihood of chance of getting eczema or, or these other conditions. And I've, I've seen these studies. So the answer is yes. Um, and so it's actually really important to us. You know, we probiotics are, are interesting, right? Because people have heard about them. They don't always take them the right way. Now, our, our, our take on probiotics is, you want to find one that has the most species possible in it that's not overwhelmingly strong because you don't want to give any specific species complete dominance over the others because then you can just create more of a dysbiosis. Dysbiosis meaning an imbalance mm-hmm. um, of gut. So the goal is to put in lots of different things so you're giving them all kind of an equal chance to survive. All of them having a purpose, which is, which is good, um, rather than just blasting the system with a single strain, you know, at a really high concentration, because now you've, you know, you've given that guy total. Yeah. Domination. So, you know, there's that. And then, um, definitely there have been some studies that have shown that specific species have value, um, you know, for, for, some of the things you're talking about, I can send a, a list if you're curious. Okay. And um, you started the um, a company, um, Excella, to investigate um, kind of uh, what goes on between uh, the gut microbiome and the uh, uh, how it affects your health. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, from my understanding is you take a blood sample and you determine like, what kind of um, metabolites or what kind of um, uh, what's in the blood. And then from there, you can deduce what kind of diet best fits a person. Is that kind of right? Correct. So 
you know, there's been a lot of sort of speculation about what does the data from the microbiome really mean? And the majority of microbiome companies are stool sample analysis companies. Um, you know, we take a very different approach um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the challenges with, you know, first of all, acquiring a stool sample, um, that has its own. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, you know, there's there's the unpleasantness of it, of it but there's really the, the bigger problem is the science. So unless you're collecting the entire stool sample, um, the challenge with just taking a piece from just like a little bit, which is much more consumer friendly, is that it's not an accurate representation of the whole. So depending on where you scoop from, mm-hmm. you're going to get a different result. And we know that because we've tried it. So... You know, I think there's a problem with that. Then the ne- so the next problem is, well, is what I'm actually looking at in the stool reflective of what is inside me? You know, what is stool? It's There's a lot of waste, dead cells, uh, indigestible fibers. So can we say what I what is in this one little teeny scoop? Is this the same as what is inside me? And the answer is it can't be yes. It just can't be. It's they're different. So there are issues with that sort of method, I think, of collection and, and science is still sorting that out. The nice thing about what we do is that we are measuring the output of the gut. So it's less about, you know, do I have eight lactobacillus and 80 billion bifidobacillus? It's more about, okay, are the lactobacillus, bifidobacillus, whatever, that are in my gut, are they actually functioning properly? It's not just about what's in there. It's about, is it working? Mm-hmm. And because to some extent, you and I could measure our microbiomes and, you know, I might have 10 of something or 10 billion. You might have 2 billion. But if your guys are working better than mine, it doesn't yeah. matter how many we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... And that's where, you know, when we, I read a lot of articles and people are like, well, you know, the microbiome still is unknown and this and that. Well, maybe, maybe from the perspective of, do you need 10, do you need 15 billion, do you need how many of these and how many of those? But when you're measuring their output, you can get a pretty good sense because you can, you can measure these markers. So the way we started was that our, our co-founder, uh, who is now in his in his late 70s, um, mm. has been in the space for more than 50 years. So he, throughout the course of his career, has been involved with hundreds of research studies looking at metabolite or small molecule differences between healthy people and unhealthy people. And that spans the gamut from, you know, people who are overweight to people with Alzheimer's disease. What is different in their bloods? What has changed? You know, if you have... Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or ALS or diabetes, frankly, heart disease, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, any of these conditions where we've been part of these studies, and you compare a healthy person to a not healthy person, so someone with the disease to someone without, what has changed throughout the course of that disease? Are there specific risk factors that make that person more likely to get that specific disease? These are all the things that, you know, we've looked at over the last 50 years. And you start to see 
trends, that there are in fact certain metabolites, markers, compounds in blood and urine and in these different fluids that do separate the healthy ones from the not so healthy ones. And when we took a step back and we said, gee, that's kind of interesting because the same sets of molecules were repeating each, themselves across these different studies. So these 11 markers that we test for in the blood were important across all these different sort of disease states as being, you know, if they're too low or too high, you might be at a higher risk. You might, you know, they're, they're, they're associated with sort of the negative side of, of, of potentially getting this disease or um, being at risk for it. When we took a step back and we said, fascinating, these same 11 things play, play a role somehow. They're relevant. Where do they come from and why are they important? They were related to the gut microbiome. So when I say that, what do I mean? So some of the molecules are actually produced by certain bacteria in the gut. So you can identify which ones are the positive ones, actually the good ones, spit out some of these molecules. You can measure that to assess, do I have enough of the good ones? Some of the invasive ones spit stuff out as well. You can measure that. So you can say, all right, I have too much of this one thing here that is produced by the invasives. I need to figure out how to lower levels of those in order to allow productivity of the better ones to improve. So you can measure those things. So again, it's the output. It's not about how many there are, but it's about, do I have enough of this? Uh, are they producing enough of these molecules? There are other molecules you can measure that assess the health of the lining. So, you know, again, you might be eating the healthiest food imaginable, but if your lining is damaged, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so is my intestine actually able to even absorb any of this? Yeah. And some of the cells in there will produce, for example, serotonin. 90% of serotonin is, is actually produced in the gut. It's important for gut motility, helping things move along. It's important because it prevents the cells of the lining from separating. Mm -hmm. When cells in the lining separate, you have this condition called leaky gut. Mm -hmm. So it means that you know, food particles and other things can potentially squeak through, right? The intestine is supposed to be a tube. But if you have a, a hole in the tube, now stuff, food particles are flowing through into areas of the body where uh, one very important area is called the lamina propria, where the immune system hangs out. Mm -hmm. That's why when people, let's say if you're, you know, let's say I, had, I, I love oranges, so I'm eating a lot of oranges. Well, now my intestinal lining is damaged. I have like little pieces of orange that are coming through into the lamina propria, my immune system is attacking it because my immune system doesn't know what an orange is. It's never yeah. produced. After a while, you develop a food sensitivity or allergy to that orange because your immune system thinks it's an invader. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, you, you want those cells to be really tightly packed so that you don't end up with leaky gut. You can measure that. You can mm -hmm. measure some of these molecules that play a role in intestinal permeability, we call it. And then you can measure some of the digestive products. So, for example, um, amino acids, right? So you've had a taco for lunch, and that taco has gone through the system. Your 
bacteria have broken it down and your, your tyrosine, your tryptophan, these amino acids are absorbed. How are my levels? Are yeah. They should be because if they are awesome, if they're not, it could be because a, you're not getting enough of that in your diet, but mm -hmm. it could also be because of the, the damaged intestinal lining. So you're not absorbing properly. So again, it's, not just an issue of what is there. It is an issue structurally of can I even absorb and process this stuff or, you know, so <clears throat> I think a lot of the products out there aren't always focused on the right thing and the data is still not so conclusive. You know, okay, so they, they provide you with a list of 200 microbes that they, that they sequenced from your gut and you look at this and you're like what does this even mean like mm -hmm. is this good is this bad what I mean, why are you telling me to eat an artichoke like yeah. why is it related mm -hmm. um, versus again in principle what we're doing is it's not about that it's about you know is the gut actually producing these molecules that i need to be healthy mm -hmm. um, I able to absorb the food that I'm eating? Um, and then as a result, you can actually make recommendations because you know if it's a damaged intestine, here are the things you need to go do. Or if it's as, simply, as simple as eat more meat, <laughs> eat more meat. Or yeah. you know, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, eat more protein from whatever source you want. But that is the fundamental difference I think between the different tests and how us with us, you know, it's a pinprick blood test. So you poke your finger, you bleed 30 to 40 microliters of blood on a collection device. You close it up, you send it to us. We look at these 11 markers mm -hmm. um, and then we provide suggestions. So again, depending on what's wrong, mm -hmm. um, is it dietary? Okay. Well, here are the foods you should eat in order to get these nutrients that you're not getting. Yeah. Or, you got a damaged intestine. We got to go fix that. Here are recommendations for things you can do to mm -hmm. rectify that problem. Or, hey, you know what? <clears throat> you have all these damage markers because you're stressed out, you're over exercising, you're whatever. We got to deal with that because that's actually affecting your gut. Yeah. Um, so, again, all the markers tell a slightly different story. And so by doing the test, you can customize that mm -hmm. client's journey. Mm -hmm. Okay. I get, I kind of get a understand. You're looking at the outcomes to kind of determine where, um, what, how to uh, combat the issue. For example, if you have low levels of serotonin, you'll figure out like these, uh, these foods pr uh, produce the pre give it the precursors to produce serotonin. Correct. Or, um, if the lining is damaged, then you're not going to be producing serotonin. So yeah. fix the lining so that the cells can go back to doing their original job, which was producing serotonin. Um, so again, you you kind of have to isolate the root of the problem in mm -hmm. order to solve it. Uh, and the only way to do that, of course, is to measure these molecules and see. I mean, in many ways, you know, people look at us and they say, well, it's a microbiome test that looks at blood. That's really weird. But blood-based testing is kind of like the industry norm. Um, you know, when you go to get a cholesterol test, you don't go and get a DNA test for high cholesterol. You know, you might be able to, they might say to you, well, you know, you might be at risk for high cholesterol. And at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, but 
do I have high cholesterol or not? I want to go get a blood test to assess that in this moment, do I have this problem? Yeah. It's the same for us, which is in this moment, <laughs> do I have this problem or not? Yeah. Rather than speculation, you know, of what might be. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have a... Um... Uh, do you have any opinions on uh, specific diets uh, like the keto diet or the Atkins diet um, and how they affect the gut microbiome? Or do you think you should just have a well-balanced diet with green veggies, fruit, meat, you know? This is uh, a great question, much debated. Mm -hmm. uh, every person is different. And there are sometimes medical reasons for why they make choices about their diets. I mean, it's, I want to say that first, because there's no way to answer that without somehow offending some group, right? Mm -hmm. My problems are this, and thus I should do that. And we get that. So I think it's, you know, we do have a lot of people who believe in the keto diet. We have an accommodation in our results if you want to follow a high-fat diet you can click on a button and it makes the report do that for you. What, what we would say is I like to defer to research always, which mm -hmm. is, you know, are there studies that show that these things are really effective long-term in some specific way? And what we haven't found there to be super strong evidence that, you know, being on a keto diet is going to be really good for the microbiome, for example, um, which is one of the reasons why we don't specifically suggest go on a keto diet. Um, but there are people who do it medically, and that's their choice. I, I would say our protocols tend to be more on the well-balanced side. Mm -hmm. They are a little bit more protein-heavy, mm -hmm. maybe all traditional uh, we, we believe in the importance of protein, mm -hmm. um, mostly because we've seen that a lot of people are really low. Uh, yeah. Proteins are not getting enough. And especially, frankly, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, it's tough to get enough protein from mm -hmm. um, plant-based diets. So, uh, but I, I would say, you know, we tend to provide kind of a well-balanced approach. Yes, we believe in green you know, green leafy vegetables and the way the report is structured, we actually break apart carbs into high and low carbs um, because to some extent salad is still a carb. Yeah. So, you know, just to encourage people to understand there's a difference between, between eating potatoes and bread and eating, you know, salads and vegetables, which are still carbohydrate based. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, I would, I like the approach of a little bit of everything. Um, most mm -hmm. of to, you know, life is short, but it's long. Like if you're going to eat the same food for the next 10 years, imagine having to eat broccoli just every day, day after day. Nobody would do it. It would be the most unsuccessful diet on the face of the planet, despite mm -hmm. the fact that I'm sure it's really, you know, really healthy. So yeah. um, providing this sort of, well-balanced, you know, and, and again, when you look at our reports, you'll see there's lots of choice. So when we talk about eating fiber-rich foods, there's like 70 choices. So, you know, you might say, well, I don't like jicama root, uh, but I do like, you know, strawberries or whatever. 
great. Um, you know, we're not going to force you to eat jicama root for the rest of your life. Yeah. Okay. Um, the last question I had was, um, you're also involved with, you founded Science from Scientists, which I think is one of the coolest things because it takes like scientists and it uh, it's like it shows high school students and middle school students this is what a scientist is like this is what we do and it kind of exposes them early um and i wanted to ask so you run a nonprofit, which is science from scientists and you run a for-profit which is um excella what are some of the challenges um in both of them and then what are some of how how have both of those organizations been you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I have great teams at both companies. Um, that is the only way to succeed. I mean, frankly, even at just one, um, I believe in the importance of building a great team. And so, um, you know, at SciSci, sci, so Science from Scientists' nickname is SciSci. Um, you know, thankfully, a lot of the day-to-day -day operations, there's a exec team and, and you know, they're able to to do a lot of the day-to-day. -day. You know, I still hope with some of the high-level fundraising and um, with some of the bigger partnerships. So our work with Disney, for example, um, you know, I'm a part of that. But I, I, I'm trying just because there's only so many hours in the day um, to figure out how to balance both, both companies. What's really interesting is they're different, but they're not. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Science from Scientists is a nonprofit, and yet it's a business. Um, you know, it's when we talk, we, we hear people talk about nonprofits, and they think, well, it's all about charity, and it's and it and it is to a certain extent. But in order to grow the business, we have to think really strategically about how to scale, about how to grow things. There's only so much, you know, money that the development team can run out and raise every year. And they're very talented, but, you know, we think about recurring revenue source sources. We think about fee-for-service programming. We think about, you know, how do we charge for a program here and then use some of those proceeds to help pay for some of the programs where the kids are poor and, and can't afford the program. But you have to think that way because someone has to pay for it. Um, it's unfortunately, that's just the economics of running a business and we pay our staff, of course, they're not volunteers. So, you know, it's thinking strategically about how to scale and grow the business in a way that allows us to serve as many really, I mean, we're very much focused on underprivileged kids, but to some extent, we also sell programs you know, at full price in order to, to private schools, in order to help offset that cost. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I run the nonprofit like a business, like a real company, not just as a um, charity because it's, there's only so much money you can raise that way. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's that. Um, and I think that's a similarity. You know, the Excella is a for-profit and mm -hmm. of course, there's no donor, there's an investor. Yeah. Investors have an expectation to get a return on their investment. Yeah. You know, just donate money to you. They, which is, you know, to some extent, people donate at SciSci. Their return on their investment are the metrics of the company. Did you show you actually 
educated kids. So we have, you know, a lot of metrics that we put forth showing the program works. Um, that's what they expect. But at Excella, it's different, right? They expect us to find clients, sell product, um, et cetera. So it's, they're different, but they're similar, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, on the sort of team and management side, they're very, very similar. Um, I think the hardest part of my job, and it's always been this way, I'm I'm a very non-traditional CEO. Um, my Myers-Briggs profile is like the opposite of what your traditional CEOs, Myers-Briggs is. And, um, you know, I'm 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 just I'm just different. And so, you know, for me, all of the leadership things you know, dealing with a lot of the interpersonal, like the, I had to learn all of that. Nobody taught me mm -hmm. how to deal with um, management related issues and leadership issues. And, and it's really hard. You know, most people aren't like you. So, you know, in the early days, I would be like, I don't understand. Why is this happening? Why can't this person just blah? And I was constantly reminded uh, by my mentors and even my husband, like, remember, everybody's not you. And they bring to the table their own sets mm -hmm. of strengths. Um, but you got to pull yourself out of it and mm -hmm. figure out how to inspire in a different way. And that's hard. You know, mm -hmm. people do all kinds of weird stuff uh, that you'll be just like, you'll be like scratching your head, like, what just happened? And why? <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, and you have a tendency because you care a lot to take everything very personally um, and people come and go in your life and that's it's kind of a lonely position so you know I'd say that is very similar on both sides just inspiring the team getting the job done um, you know and and helping them to be the best that they can be mm -hmm. Often I, I I spend time just sort of as a you know listening as a counselor. I listen to people's troubles and try to help them, you know, make good decisions and um you know and and what do I do about this? What do I do about that? And you know, and someone's having a hard time, like but it's hard. It's that's the kind of stuff that is draining, like mm -hmm. imagine, you know, doing that all day. So I think that it's it's interesting because you're, you know, in both companies, you're raising money. Yeah. It's a different structure, but you still have to raise money. That's mm -hmm. hard. Um, but they're similar but different. Um, in both companies, you have to learn how to be a leader and a manager and, um, you know, be firm but fair. It's hard uh, to, to do that. And especially when half the time you don't necessarily know the right answer. Yeah, yeah. I don't always know. Like, well, do you think this is the right answer? It's like, sure, yep, let's do it. <laughs> but it reminds me, there's this great scene. I don't know if you're a, a Star Trek fan. There's this great scene in one of the Star Trek The Next Generation episodes where Jean-Luc Picard and Beverly Crusher are, like, stranded on this planet together. Mm -hmm. And they've been connected via, like, a device where they can hear each other's thoughts. Yeah. And she says to him, like, which way should we go? And mm -hmm that way like with a, a thousand percent conviction and she she stops so they start walking and then she stops and she says you don't really know <laughs> that's the right way to go and he's like no and she goes wait but you just said that with a hundred percent like you knew and 
He was like, well, you don't know, and I don't know. I mean, someone has to decide. Yeah. So, you know, there's, and she's like, well, how many times have you actually done this (laughs) in our lives together? And so it's, it's really tough, but, you know, you, you have to, you figure out how to, how to lead. And it's, it's just years of, and I'm still learning. And with every year that goes by, it's like, you realize how much you don't know um, Mm -hmm. anything else. But um, again, I don't know how helpful that is, but I think it's. Yeah. I think a lot of it is like a trial and error because I think everyone's different. And one thing you work at it, might not work out, you fail, you try, but from the failure, you learn these things didn't work. So let's not do this again and try it a different way. And that's, I think in both in science as well as in companies, those two things are similar. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The word failure has always been, failure suggests like a total disaster. Um, so I'm always very careful not to use that. I, I I think you want to have you can fail, but you better have a a safety net. Um, you know, for example, if you're a startup and you run out of money, you're screwed. I mean, it is in fact that is a failure, and there's no way back from it. So even if you, oh, but I know what to do now. Um, so I'm careful to use that word, um, but I think it's it's almost like a a measured, you have to, you can be careful in what you do. I tell people, try it. You know, and we, we've, at that point, we've calculated the risk. Um, If the risk is so real that it threatens the company, the team, people, people's jobs, we have to be very careful about taking that risk. But if it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a risk that does not potentially endanger the entire organization then it, sure you know go for it and if mm-hmm. it then we don't care but I, I just I like to tell people this idea that you know you learn from failure failure is scary when it's really failure mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's you have to set yourself up to allow yourself and the team to have room to try things and then you don't, there's no blame. I never, I don't, I don't like blame. I don't blame people. I, it's just stupid. It's a waste of time. Um, you know, and if it doesn't work, then we learned. Um, but as long as the ramifications, you know, aren't the, well, as a result of that, we need to lay off half the team or, you know, we have to close down the company or, um, you know, so again, it's measured risk so that, you know, ahead of time, if we do this, if it totally bombs out, okay, these are the ramifications. We are willing. Are we all good with that? Are we willing to take that chance? Yes, good, okay. If not, let's make a different um, let's make a different plan. And otherwise, I think lots of people are afraid to just like, try stuff if they really haven't thought through what are the ramifications yeah. of that decision. So, you know, again, I the word failure scares me um, because failure suggests like, like engine failure. Oh, that's really bad. So, you know, you don't want that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, um, those were all the questions that I had. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Engel, for um, taking the time and doing this podcast. You bet. Absolutely. Hopefully it was useful and helpful. And um, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. Have a nice day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Um.